suicide game just yesterday It's made all that I learned The emptiness of life examined Paul out there, welcome to another episode of Things I Learned While Learning Other Things. This is an attempt by me, Joe Moran, and my brother, J.S., to provide you with a series of interesting, informative, educational, and we hope enjoyable stories that will help you navigate through those high seas of life. Today's episode is entitled Murder Just a Shot Away Part 6. And we offer you this product Post the teen takeover of Chicago this past weekend. A horror story of violence that we cannot get away from. But no major city is without its historical disasters. Every city is in Pompeii that ended in a flash. Even so, Chicago is a city with a history that reads like a rap sheet. And this may account of, for some of what is going on. It's the civil, civic equivalent of a lifelong criminal and high-level rates of recidivism, but absent the glories that attend to a city of world-class status and world-class achievement worthy of, say, London. No, this is Chicago. The city of Chicago... You know, any definition of a living organism may in fact have within its DNA sequencing a dangerous mutation that has led to its troubled historical existence. And the history of Chicago is a Greek tragedy with racial, ethnic divides, violence, murder, and debacle. As far back as 1871, You know, the Great Fire of Chicago left 100,000 people homeless and burned to ashes 3.3 square miles of the city of Chicago. Of course, Chicago being Chicago, someone had to be blamed. Someone had to be responsible for the disaster. And nothing was easier nor better politically than to pin the blame for it on those dirty, uneducated immigrants, the practically ignorant, functionally illiterate Mrs. O'Leary. Oh, those nasty, filthy Irish, the irresponsible Irish, letting her cow kick over the lantern in that barn out of which the origin um, of the great fire started that burned down the city. This is what happens when you let these people into the country. So was the argument made in 1871. And, and true, it was understood the Irish were fleeing those, you know, those lucky enough to have outlasted the starvation and had survived the great hunger, you know, the potato blight that ruined the harvest of the most important crop in Ireland. You know, upon which crop the Irish had depended, many of whom dwelled in sod underground abodes. Hard to actually call them homes. They lived like, you know, leprechauns or trolls, dependent upon that potato as their primary, if not sole source of calories. But then look what happened. They came to America, came here to America and ruined cities like Boston, New York, and Chicago. Poverty, crime, disease, all there for. 
those dirty, nasty, ignorant people. And they're Catholics, too. No sooner had the great city of Chicago begun to recover from the great fire, find its bearing, so to speak, and it would show itself to be America's second city by hosting the World's Fair of 1893. And the World's Fair was a success. But there was a dark side, too. In 1883, a truly evil serial killer, H. H. Holmes roamed the city, and he had been hard at work during the World's Fair. A multi-murderer, bigamist, seducer, resurrectionist, forger, thief, and general swindler. A man without parallel in the annals of all crime history. And among his many crimes, Holmes suffocated many of his murder victims in a vault. He boiled a man in oil. He poisoned wealthy women to gain control of their great wealth and fortunes. And Holmes admitted he had killed at least 27 people, most of whom he'd lured into a specific purpose-filled you know, murder castle in the city of Chicago, replete with secret passageways, trap doors, and soundproof torture rooms. You know, in that, in that regard, he resembled Lord Chancellor St. Thomas More, whom tortured people in his basement, blasphemers whom deserved it, uh, of course, I might add, before heading off to work uh, to serve King Henry VIII. Holmes's torture chambers in Chicago included an intricate system of chutes and ladders that enabled Holmes to transport his victims' bodies to Chicago Ba the, the building's basement. And it was purportedly equipped with a dissecting table, a stretching rack, and operating crematorium. Jeez. In the killer's own words, I was born with the devil in me. I could not help the fact that I was a murderer. No more than a poet can help, you know, the inspiration to sing. You know, Chicago is my kind of town, as Sinatra would sing. Home, you know, home set the bar high for later Chicago torture killers like Richard Speck and John Wayne Gacy to follow. Yeah, I always hated clowns. In any event, Chicago around time of the World's Fair and Holmes had begun to rebuild itself. And just as it did, the extremely powerful trade unionist movement sunk it, sunk it, sunk deep roots into the soil in, of all places, the city of Chicago. Eugene Debs, a committed socialist, organized one of the first industrial unions in the United States, the American um, Railway Union, the ARU as it was known, and soon waged disputes between the railroad employees and the railroads became far more vitriolic. And soon thereafter, the ominous mood in the city metastasized into something far more sinister. And after the great financial panic of 1893, something had to give. The pressure was too intense and as a result came to a boil in 1894. Pressure. You know, in, in physical science terms, it's the perpendicular force per unit area or the stress at a point within a confined fluid. In this case, confined to Chicago. And things just finally exploded. 
And the flashpoint of the labor dispute was the Pullman Palace Car Company, which manufactured rail cars. And post the 1893 financial panic, the railroad, already in financial jeopardy and distress, saw it necessary to cut worker wages by 28%. This was the Gordian knot moment, if you will. Things could not be put back together peaceably as history would demonstrate. You know, at the ARU convention that summer in Chicago, the sentiment for striking the Pullman Company not only took root, it took hold and fomented. Violence loomed. And the U.S. federal government was sitting back and watching the situation in Chicago closely and took an increasing interest in the employees' threatened boycott of the Pullman Company as Pullman train cars delivered U.S. mail. Any threatened boycott of Pullman by striking workers would threaten U.S. mail delivery services. And this was not going to be allowed to happen. It just wasn't. It would not be allowed. As a potential boycott appeared ever more likely, and an outcome that the federal government could never countenance, it took affirmative action to ensure that U.S. mail services would not be interrupted by a boycott. It intervened in one accord injunction, preventing any disruption of services due to a threatened union-organized boycott of Pullman. The U.S. government, the U.S. federal government, took no official stance as to which side it favored in the labor dispute. But they made, it, made its official position perfectly clear. There would be no boycott of Pullman as mail delivery would not be interrupted by the boycott. The two sides in the dispute... You know, they might continue to be at each other's throats. That was fine with the federal government. But the boycott action would not be tolerated by the administration, not, not for one day. And, and when the vexatious dispute mutated from angry voices in opposition between union employees, strike breakers, and railroad executives, and turned ugly and the violence ensued, President Grover Cleveland felt obligated to involve the U.S. government directly into the labor dispute and sent U.S. Army troops to enforce the injunction. And for, and for, for those of you out there who might be like legal scholars, I do not know. I do not know whether the Cleveland administration took said action, believing that it was empowered to do so under certain provisions of the Posse Comitatus Act of, of uh, 1878. I mean, that act removed the military from regular civil law enforcement duties and had been enacted in the first place in response to the abuses resulting from extensive use of the U.S. Army in civil law enforcement proceedings during the Civil War and Reconstruction to follow. And the act does maintain legislated exceptions. So back in Chicago, the situation got completely out of hand. And when the smoke cleared, there were 13 workers dead, 80 million of property damage was reported. And by the way, in 1894, $80 million was a lot of money. Eugene Debs was the ARU president. And as such, he was held responsible for encouraging the boycott in violation of the injunction and inciting his union members to violence. Debs was arrested, he was indicted, he was tried, he was found guilty and convicted of contempt of court for violating the court-ordered injunction and imprisoned. And, you know, and an interesting sidebar, famous civil libertarian defense uh, lawyer, Clarence Darrow, who in the past had previously worked for the railroad, he took up Debs' case. 
it ultimately wound up, you know, and wound up wound its way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Um, alas, in in um, in Ray Debs, the U.S. Supreme Court upheld the right of the federal government to issue the injunction, and Debs' conviction would stand. You know, and as as is often the case with an inmate in prison. Debs found he had plenty of time to read, and in his particular case, he had been provided a copy of Karl Marx's Das Kapital. And whatever Debs' political philosophy was pre-arrest, post-conviction, after voraciously consuming the philosophy laid out by Marx in his manifesto, as Debs himself would later admit, he had become a full-blown Marxist socialist after that. No doubt about it. He drunk the Kool-Aid down to the last drop and admitted it. De- and by the way, Debs would run for president um, under the socialist ticket four times. And the last time he ran for president from his prison cell, but from which he still garnered 3% of the vote in the presidential election. He finished third, as he had four years previously. Prison had not appeared to have hurt Debs standing in the eyes of the electorate, not with his peeps anyway, you know, and 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 like Marion Bear, Marion Barry, nearly a hundred years later, whom upon, I mean, this is so amazing, upon whom being arrested in 1989 in Washington D.C. in a hotel room during an FBI sting operation in which he was caught on videotape freebasing cocaine with a prostitute, the. The irate, indignant mayor, Marion Barry, infamously screamed to the camera that was recording the incident and his subsequent arrest. He screamed out, the bitch set me up. In what would turn out to be an adult lifetime spent doing enormous amounts of street drugs, Marion Barry would, would get out of prison. And despite the fact that wherever he turned up, corruption soon flourished, and he had these significant character flaws, his run, he made a third run for the mayor of the District of Columbia, relying upon, and one's got to admit, this is a rather unusual, highly idiosyncratic, counterintuitive, but clever campaign slogan. He ran under the slogan, he may not be perfect, but he's perfect for D.C. And he was. Marion Barry would be back. You know, like, you know, like Freddy, Freddy Krueger, who just could not be killed off. Mayor Marion Barry was back in office as mayor, back in power, back in the saddle. But Barry, despite a myriad of legal and ethical problems that followed him wherever he went, he'd win both a third and a fourth term as D.C. mayor. And the city was in financial chaos by the time he left office. But I think one can safely say, had Marion Barry's fate been that he would have grown up and lived in Chicago, I am sure that Chicago would have elected Marion Barry mayor three or four times at least. For sure. So many problems trailed him. You know, like, like not filing federal tax returns for a nine of a 10-year period during one stretch of his life. Shit like this. But this was only scratching the surface of a man of the character of Marion Barry. You know, Mayor Harold Washington of Chicago, he too, it was found out, had not filed federal tax returns for a decade. 
And voters didn't hold that against him either. It's, you know, this whole thing is kind of like, like Greece, where, you know, where anyone in Greece filing tax returns means they are chumps. I mean, the country may be on financial life support. It, well, it is on financial life support. And it gets by thanks to handouts from hardworking Germans. And, and the Germans pay to young and old Greek men sitting in, in corner coffee shops smoking Karelia Slims all day long. But, but that, that story, um, let, let, let's let that remain for another day. Let's get back to Eugene Debs in Chicago for a moment. Debs was a much better man than either Marion Barry or Harold Washington, despite the fact that he became a communist. And so it must be that we will end this episodic adventure of murder just a shot away, where, where we have begun, just begun to narrow our focus to the mutated DNA of the city of Chicago, such that violence is just something Chicagoans live with. And this mutated DNA has allowed Chicago to become murder central, murder city, leading the nation in killings for 11 consecutive years. It's a startling string of mayhem. And we're going to stay with Chicago in our next session as we lead into one of our bioblast episodes that, that will be entitled The Trial of Brandon Johnson. And if you don't know, Brandon Johnson is the mayor-elect of Chicago who will take office on May 15th. And he's got some very interesting ideas, which we're going to discuss. But before, and, and, and before we end all this, we're going to spend a few more moments spent discussing Psycho Chicago. So, hey, thanks for listening. We're ending Murder Just a Shot Away Part 6. And we're hope you're gonna, we hope you're going to tune in to what follows. It's crazy. Bye-bye. And wherever you are, I hope you sleep tight. I am in a far-off place Half a world away And there's so much to do And there's so much to see Mother Nature's had her way There are mountains and valleys And beautiful hills each vista something new And though my imagination's been captured My thoughts, they return to you So can you help relieve me Of this burden on my back There's something wrong deep inside of me Or something I must lack for I've got this worry you'll be leaving me And I must admit that I'm scared So can you try to convince